K-A-L-W. This is TBH. I'm Hannah Nee. I'm from San Jose, and now I'm a freshman at the University of Chicago. And I'm Chosong Tenzin, a senior at Oakland Technical High School. This podcast is made by, about, and for teenagers. And for anybody else who wants to hear what's on our minds. Today's episode is about segregation and inequities in public schools. It's been 66 years since the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Brown v. Board of Education that racial segregation in public schools is unconstitutional. But segregation persists in schools around the country. A two-year investigation by the California Attorney General found a school district in Marin County had set up a separate and unequal system meant to keep low-income children of color out. The topic of school segregation came up in a heated moment between Joe Biden and Kamala Harris during the presidential debate. And it is personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. Kamala Harris is, of course, now running alongside Joe Biden to be the next vice president. You know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. And now, because of the pandemic and virtual learning, many of the racial and economic inequities in America's school systems are likely to get even worse. We had a virtual conversation with the other TBH students this summer on ways education already feels separate and unequal. Hi, my name is Zara Emmeth, and I'm from Fremont, California, and I'm an incoming first year at Ohlone Community College. I'm Maddie Johnson. I live in San Francisco, and I'm going to be an incoming freshman at UC Berkeley. Hi, I'm Ava Richards. I live in Belmont, California, and I am a senior at Carmont High School. In my honors and AP classes, there weren't as many people of color as would reflect the demographics of the school population. And part of the reason for that was there was a lot of prerequisite requirements, such as PSAT scores, as well as grades in prerequisite classes. And that was sort of a gatekeeping of the advanced and honors program to me because it felt like they're trying to weed out people that they didn't think would do well. And that might have been for those students' benefits, but it also gave, it also prevented a lot of people from having the chance to participate in those classes and it made the school feel segregated in some ways. I didn't just choose honors or AP courses because I was like, oh, I like want to challenge myself. I knew like my friends were taking these courses, so I would take them. Um, And like, The thing is, is that I noticed that, like, in these courses, there weren't a lot of, like, white girls or people from, like, other demographics. Um, And if there were, there was, like, one or two, and they would always feel isolated. Like, they would be the only person they knew in the class. And then all of us, we would just, like, bunch up to the side, which is something that, like, I, I feel bad about doing. Not having any friends in a classroom who look like you. Um, or are part of the same activities is also like a deterrent um, to your academic success or your comfortability 
So I go to Kennedy High School, and right next door is, like, ROP, which is, like, a career technical training school, so you can take electives there. And I took computer science, and I didn't really have any friends. I had, like, one or two people that I, like, knew from there, but I, and I was, like, one, I believe one of, like, four or five girls in that class of, like, over 20 guys, and it was just... It, it just felt really uncomfortable and knowing, like, I don't know, there were times where I felt like, oh, like, the ver- there's a very male-dominated perspective in this class and there's just, like, this one way to do things. Or sometimes it would be even, like, patronizing when uh, you would have, like, a male partner trying to teach you something. I mean, that really went to show me if I'm a minor- if anyone else is a minority, like, they're going to feel that way because they don't have, like, the sense of, like, oh, there's a group with them that, like, oh, we're going through this together. It really makes people feel like an other when they're in that situation. Um, at my school, there's not a lot of funding. We have issues with that at um, Tech, and we kind of see that with, like, the teachers having to buy their own supplies for students. Like, every year they'll, like, get us notebooks or, like, buy their own paper. And sometimes, like, the community will help out and contribute. But we definitely see the lack of supplies and things like that that um, would you would expect like a school to be providing. I feel like due to the fact that our school has less funding, um, it's harder to get teachers who actually have teaching degrees or have experience. And yeah, and just like in AP classrooms, for example, I noticed like in calculus, lots of students um, who are more well off could have tutors to help them outside of class. While like for me example, like I I couldn't really do that. Um, and It was like a common thing, like everyone in that class had a tutor because like of the rigor of the class. It's always been really frustrating for me because like I I, it just I hate seeing like people who like deserve to get the help they need. They but they just can't because of how everything every I just feel like everything seems to revolve around money now. And there's just some people who they just can't afford to do that. And I just. I hate that so much. And like my school has been trying to provide like free tutoring resources um, or, or it was before COVID. I don't know what happened with it, but we had like a room where you could go every morning and students could tutor you about specific subjects. And like I thought that was so awesome because it was trying to address a lot of the inequities that are especially like in my area. I think that even if even if we could all get tutors, even if everyone could afford a tutor for the SAT, there would still be a ton of inequalities and inequities because it really starts at the age that you enter the classroom. And for me, that was preschool. But I know when I showed up to kindergarten, I had learned to read in preschool and a lot of my peers were still learning the alphabet because they hadn't gone to preschool. And it just shows that as soon as we enter the world of education, there are inequities present. And if we don't support students from the age that they enter the classroom, it's really too late to start supporting them, you know, at the end of high school or when they're going into college. It's too hard to make up for some of those deficits sometimes. Those were the voices of Zara and Mudd, Maddie Johnson, Ava Richards, me, Hannah Nee, and my co-host, Chosong Tenzin. Next, we're going to hear a story from me about my school, Oakland Tech. I'm a senior there now and I wanted to understand more about what a diverse student body means. 
without integrated classrooms. I avoided the lawn because like in my first year at Oakland Tech, all the black students were like, do not sit on the lawn. First of all, because there's a bunch of white students. I literally could see like, okay, these are the Asians, these are the Mexicans, these are the whites, these are the black students. So I was like, wow, that's crazy. Like they're really all separated. Like, you know, in movies where they have like the little charts, you can tell who is who. Like that's what it felt like, like a movie scene. Those are my friends describing the lunch scene at our public high school. The second description came from Atia Black, my friend and classmate, a fellow senior. I've known her since preschool. She was actually referring to a scene out of the infamous high school comedy, Mean Girls, when Janice and Damien showed the new girl around the lunchroom. Now, where you sit in the cafeteria is crucial because you got everybody there. You got your freshmen, ROTC guys, preps, Asian nerds, cool Asians, unfriendly black hotties, girls who eat their feelings, girls who don't eat anything, and the worst, beware of the plastic. But that movie was released 16 years ago, and it was set in a fictitious high school in Evanston, Illinois. But Oakland Technical High School is real, and it's a prestigious magnet public school of about 2,000. It's known for its academic rigor and specialized academies in North Oakland, California. It's one of the most ethnically and economically diverse public high schools in the United States. About half of students come from Oakland Tech's district, while the other half comes from the rest of the city. When I started as a freshman, I came from a private and predominantly white middle school. I was excited at the prospect of attending a school with such diversity. I'm Tibetan American, and I'm a first-generation immigrant student. I was no longer going to be the minority. I thought that my high school experience would be like my preschool experience, where everyone was integrated. So the harsh reality of Oakland Tech's Mean Girls lunch scene felt like a sharp slap in my face. The segregation is still apparent, both in and out of the classroom. For example, I'm a part of this program called Paideia. At Oakland Tech, Paideia is an integrated English and history program that starts in 10th grade and turns into an honors or advanced placement program in 11th and 12th grades. It's a program that puts the school on prospective parents' radars in terms of academic achievement. When it started more than 35 years ago, its rigorous standards put many black students on the path to top-tier colleges. An Oakland Magazine article from 2017 quotes one of its black alumni saying that Paideia's founding teacher had saved her life when she and her sister were being brought up by a single mother while her father was addicted to crack. But these days, I'm just one of a few minorities in the class, which is full of Caucasian and other Asian students. In my classroom last year, there were only three Latinx students and one Black or Cameroonian American student. That was my friend, Victoria Bala. Given that the school is almost a third Black, a third White, 17% Latinx, and less than 20% Asian, Paideia doesn't reflect the broader student body and it feels as if these classes have become a vehicle and symbol of segregation within our school. Anyone can take Paideia in 10th grade, but you need your current Paideia teacher's recommendation to get into the higher grade level classes, which are honors or advanced placement classes with tough academic standards. I joined Paideia because my older sister was in the program. She thought it would prepare me for college level writing. So when 11th grade rolled around, I easily got the needed recommendation for my teacher to continue with the program. Meanwhile, 
my peers who are taking non-Paideia English and history classes said they would see substitutes more than their actual teachers, or their teachers would leave in the middle of the year. I didn't want to fall behind in my studies, so I stayed in the class. Even though the lack of diverse student perspectives leaves critical voices out of our conversations. As successful as it's been, Paideia's rigorous standards also seem to have sent the wrong message to some students. Many black students don't feel as if they can get in. When I asked my friend Atia what she thinks about the program, she said, That seems like a very hard class. Like, I'd never heard of a lot of African-Americans wanting to join Paideia. The black kids were never in there and they never thought they were smart enough to even take the class. National data suggests that this problem might extend beyond my school. A 2016 study shows that academic tracking, or grouping of students by academic performance, can create racial silos that sideline high-achieving students of color. Education experts call this the opportunity gap, when school counselors, teachers, or leaders underestimate a student's potential. A student may not be sure of their own abilities, but their counselors or teachers also don't provide them the resources and encouragement to take advanced placement classes. A lot of things can contribute to this opportunity gap. Some students may not have someone like my sister to advise them early on in their lives. Some students may lack exposure to available opportunities at school. Some may just not have basic resources. Jesse Rothstein, an economics professor at Berkeley, says that there are several ways that educators can try to close this gap. There have been some studies that, that say that if you have gifted programs and you make sure that you evaluate every student for whether, they're, whether they should be let into that program, that you wind up with much more diverse groups than if you just wait for parents to demand that their kids be, be evaluated. Another option is to ensure that all non-advanced programs have teaching as thorough as the advanced programs. Hallie Potter, a senior fellow at the Century Foundation, is an advocate of this approach. One of the challenges about academic tracking is that you can get into a vicious cycle where once you have segregated classrooms and segregated opportunities, it's hard to break out of that because that segregation then sends the message that some kids belong and some kids don't. Instead of suddenly introducing advanced placement classes at the high school level, districts can try to increase the quality of their instruction as early as middle school to prevent academic tracking, she says. That way, teachers can identify students who are struggling as early as sixth grade and give them extra tutoring or support. The goal is to normalize these advanced standards for all students. An example of a school district that has successfully adopted this approach is Rockville Center in Long Island, New York. It took them several years to implement. Oakland Tech has made some effort to include more students in its specialized academies. For example, if you're interested in subjects like engineering, computer science, law, health, or fashion art and design, you could apply in freshman year. It was a part of a push to prioritize students who are falling behind. Students in these academies or pathways receive more academic support and information about career opportunities. The intention behind the change is great, but the execution was not. It ended up leaving some students with no academy. Potter's suggestion of detracking would probably meet resistance at Oakland Tech. Even floating the idea of changing the Paidea program has faced backlash from parents. They worry that it may deter people from sending their children to Oakland Tech. They are concerned that the school will lower its academic standards. 
Then there's the question of culture, communication, and classroom management. Even when there are students of color in the advanced classes, many of us feel as if we're mere tokens in an elitist forum. That's how my friend Victoria Bala, a senior at Oakland Tech, felt. I remember I wanted to transfer out of Paideia for the first month that I was in there because I was the only black girl in the class. And not because, oh, oh, I feel out of place being the only black girl. But no, it's because also my experiences having to feel like feeling like I have the duty as a black person to stand up for each negative or problematic thing that someone says is stifling. That's a common reason that many students of color at Tech choose to opt out of Paideia. But this negative feeling towards the class seems to reinforce the trope at school that Black students aren't smart enough. And like, even, oh my goodness, I hear this a lot. Oh, Victoria, you're so eloquent. What? Am I supposed to speak in Ave? Like, what do you want from me? Like, I can speak in Ave if I want to. It's called code switching, baby. You have, their their standards are so low that I'm just like, you're you're eloquent too, Karen. Okay. And what of it? Like, it's... It's disheartening that the like when I even tried to switch into Paideia, they're like Paideia computer science. My friend Atia explains why she feels more comfortable and included in her classes from the Academy Race Policy and Law, or RPL. The RPL Academy curates their own English and history classes, which can be an alternative track to Paideia for those who are interested in social justice or pursuing a career in law. In addition to being actually composed of a more diverse student body, one of the RPL teachers actively manages the way students in class interact. And my teacher, I did a, um, a graphic thing where like um, which students answered the most questions and it was mostly white kids. And she was like, yeah, I don't like that at all. So she wrote down all those people's names and she did not let them answer the question for the whole discussion. And that really helped because when she did that, I was just raising my hand like, wow. I still just wanted to say something because I knew if I was wrong, at least I got called on. At least I know that she had enough interest in me to call on me. Oakland Unified School District did not respond to my requests for a comment on the story. Teaching methods, classroom organization, scheduling, lack of cultural competency, and strained student-teacher relations. All these factors look relatively mundane when examined in isolation. But as I started to make a list of all these points my peers and teachers brought up, I realized segregation in schools is like a neglected pile of dirty dishes in the kitchen. It starts off with one issue, but if you don't actively manage the pile of issues as they accumulate, now there's 10. And it all starts to look intimidating and unmanageable. When I was in elementary school, we would have diversity dinners where families would bring foods from their culture. I learned about a broad range of ethnicities and different family structures. I built a stronger connection to my community through food. Being able to be proud of my Tibetan heritage and understand that everyone has their own family traditions and cultures was not only reassuring, but educational. Perhaps Oakland Tech could do something like this. My point is, we need more cultural competency. I mean, a promotion of understanding between all the diverse cultures at our school and better communication between the student bodies. I think having more student activities like after school and during lunch, even like, I know people are getting jobs now, but I think that having after school things that involve all races would be good. Like, cause you can get to know them and get to see how they have fun and things like that. As for the more profound and structural changes in curriculum, 
The Century Foundation's Potter agrees that cultural competence and community is important. She stresses the importance for all parties. Parents, administrators, and teachers need to support their students and go into this new detracking tactic with an open mind. That community buy-in um, is, is part of what can make this work or can break it. You can put all the students in community together, but unless the members of the community work together to understand each other and the real dynamics driving the students and members of the community will never achieve what the litigants in Brown versus Board of Education sought to achieve. That is true human equality. Recognizing that separate with different resources in education is not equal. I think it's important to emphasize complex problems such as segregation in schools become solvable with the right resources, dedication, communication, organization, and cooperation of teachers, parents, and administrators. And it's worth it. As Martin Luther King Jr. once said, It seems to me that integration at its best is the opportunity to participate in the beauty of diversity. As a collective community, I believe we can take the steps towards integration in our public schools. It's like drawing on a blank canvas. A blank slate is intimidating, but once you paint one stroke, the rest of the image comes easier. I encourage our educators to be courageous. Make that first stroke with your paintbrush, and the rest will be history. Thanks for that piece, Cho. Your observations at Oakland Tech are eerily similar to mine at my private all-girls Catholic high school. In most of my AP or honors classes, the demographic largely skews Asian and Caucasian. Seldom are there other minorities, and it's the responsibility of educational institutions to start making advanced classes more accessible to Latinx, African-American, indigenous, and other underrepresented communities. That's especially true during the pandemic. Cho, are you seeing that play out at your school? Yeah, well, teachers and students are trying their best to adjust to this new form of online school. And I'm not going to lie, it was a bit slow and confusing in the beginning. But I think this new schedule will smooth out as we go. As a senior during the pandemic, I'm not only navigating my last year of high school remotely, but I have to really manage my time and have self-discipline when it comes to finding time to work on my college apps, go to work, and take care of myself. Yeah, as someone who has just finished senior year of high school, I can sympathize. Without support from your friends, it's going to be difficult to get through all the tasks ahead, and graduation in the spring will be much harder and more disappointing. For me, I'm not sure how remote learning in college will pan out. I'm nervous because this is my first time taking college courses, so I hope the adjustment won't be too difficult. On a more positive note, the 2020 election is coming up very soon, and I'll be soon voting for the first time. Woohoo! And the outcome of this election will have a significant impact on education around the country, and that includes the affordability of college. We're going to wrap up today's show with a commentary from a San Francisco high school student. My name is Peter Chu. I'm a 11th grader at Galileo High School. Um, today I'll be talking about access to education. Um, it doesn't affect me directly, but it affects my mother because uh, back in China, she actually had to pay for her education, which is a which actually limits the actual reach of education because um, she couldn't afford to actually finish her education back in China. 
three members of her family, including her, had to drop out of a school early on to pursue work to support the family. Um, I feel lucky compared to what my mother had to go through. I don't have to drop out of school because education here is free, as opposed to my mother who could only have seven years of education. I can go up until 12th grade for free, but college is another deal we have to face here. I think colleges are far too expensive. Um, many people work their entire lives paying off college debt and that could lead to many problems. Just to learn things, having to pay money is kind of unreasonable. My mom is hoping that I do go to college. Yeah. <laughs> I feel that education in general should have a large reach, especially in poorer communities where they can't uh, afford to pay for college or school in general. Um, I think education should be free. Thanks for that commentary, Peter. My parents do not have access to any education until they are 20 years old. Not because they couldn't afford it, but because they grew up in an isolated countryside in Tibet. When my mother came to America, she decided to enroll in community college to learn English and pursue a degree in child development. Like Peter's parents, my parents recognize the privilege of education and want for me what they were not able to experience growing up. Because education is a priority in our household, I feel super grateful to be able to receive free education, and I have the opportunity to further my education in college. Hearing the challenges my parents face coming to America as refugees, knowing no English and having to navigate a new place, it's made me truly value my education and life I have now. That's so great, Cho. Well, unlike Peter's parents, my parents, who also immigrated to the U.S. from China, had free access to education from elementary school to undergraduate college. Both of them were not well off growing up, especially my mother. But education paved the way for their social and economic mobility. Without their education, it is hard to imagine them immigrating here on F1 student visas, attaining white-collar jobs as an engineer and a data analyst and building a comfortable life for my brother and me. And it's heartbreaking to hear that the type of education my parents received isn't available for everyone. You've been listening to TBH, a podcast from KLW Public Radio. Holly J. McDee edited and taught along with Sarah Lye Sterland and Kristen McCandless. Our engineers are Kristen McCandless, James Rollins, and Gabe Graben. Music was composed by Dawood Anthony. Our artwork was created by Awan Mance. Shireen Adel is the content manager. And Ben Trefney is the executive director. This project was made possible with support from the Association for Continuing Education, the California Arts Council, and California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. In the next episode, we're talking about the impact of school discipline on Black students. This is a student that's going to just end up dead or in jail. Like, they just was like, okay, it is what it is. Like, that that's just Kevin. They didn't really care to understand me or try to, like, you know, like, really just be there. Classrooms and punishment, next time on TBH. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Hannah Nee. 
And I'm Cho Song Tenzin. Bye!